Hello, and welcome to the course. I am your host for today, Julie, and I am speaking with Professor Dan Arnold of the Divinity School at the University of Chicago. Professor Arnold is a scholar of Indian Buddhist philosophy and is an associate professor of the philosophy of religions, as well as an associate faculty member of South Asian Languages and Civilization at the University of Chicago. His work has appeared in the New York Times and the Los Angeles Review of Books, as well as in peer-reviewed journals such as Philosophy East and West and Religion, Brain, and Behavior, and in numerous edited volumes in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. He is here to talk to us about his career path and how he became a University of Chicago professor. Welcome to the course, Professor Arnold. It's good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Can you give me a general overview of your career path from college to arriving at the University of Chicago as a faculty member? What are the major steps you took along the way? Uh, A short version of my journey to Chicago. Uh, I was an undergraduate at Carleton College in Minnesota, Uh, graduated in 1988 with a major in history, medieval European history for no other reason than that I loved the professor who taught that. Um, I've long advocated to students that they should consider classes based mainly on um, the, the teachers that not very often a teacher makes a much bigger difference than the seemingly intrinsic interest of, of the material. As a senior in college, I did a, a Tibetan studies semester abroad program with the School for International Training. Uh, already in high school, traveled in Japan for a bit, so I knew I was interested in Asia. I did the Tibetan studies program in India and Nepal and had a really galvanizing experience. Then after college, I first started graduate school a a year out of college at Columbia University, thinking to uh, earn a master's degree and and apply for a a return to India and Nepal, perhaps as an assistant director on that program or something. But I I kind of got um, swept away by by life at Columbia and life in New York. I um, the study of Sanskrit, uh, Tibetan studies there wasn't quite as straightforward as I had thought it would be. And I found myself involved in all kinds of extracurricular things, too. So um, I actually hated Columbia and hated New York at the time that I was there. That was 89 to 92. Uh, but I'm very glad in retrospect to have been there because I uh, met the woman who became my wife. And I learned, uh, I got three years of Sanskrit. And um, my uh, desultory graduate years at Columbia, I first discovered there was actually philosophy I was interested in, not history. It happened when... I chanced to find myself reading Daniel Dennett's book, Consciousness Explained, at around the same time that I was getting acquainted with uh, Buddhist arguments about, about the nature of the self. So anyway, I, I, I bailed on Columbia and uh, went home to my native Denver and lived in Denver for five years and worked at an outstanding independent bookstore and studied half-time at a a seminary associated with the University of Denver. And that was really uh, an important period to me. It made a lot of difference to me that I spent that time studying without any particular goals in mind. It was non-instrumental study. I'd given up on the PhD idea, and and I had the luxury of studying at this seminary because my dad was a professor at the University of Denver, and, and so I could study at the seminary uh, for, for new tuition. 
And there was a, a Buddhist studies scholar there, Jose Cabazon, that I had a prior connection with. So my 20s, I spent in Denver really, um, 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 it, it seems in retrospect, like the most purely philosophical part of, of my life where my readings in philosophy were guided only by my interests and, and so on. Uh, and it was only towards the end of that period that I finally um, became clear that I did uh, want actually to do a doctorate in, in uh, philosophy. And by then I had a much clearer idea of what my interests were. Uh, and I also had a clear idea that it was at the University of Chicago that I wanted to do my doctorate. And that was owing to a... a, um, a chance encounter when I was studying in Denver with Paul Griffiths, um, a studies scholar at the University of Chicago who uh, taught a summer course in Denver. Uh, so by the time I decided, um, age 30, that I did want to do a PhD after all, I was sure I wanted to do it at Chicago. And I um, actually enrolled in 97 in the Divinity School and graduated with my doctorate in 2002. I was, after the the five years of unpressured, unhurried study in Denver in a pretty good position to uh, do things uh, expeditiously by then. So I, I took five years for the doctorate. And my uh, first job was at McGill University, and it was a tenure-track job. Uh, moved to Montreal, bought a house there, and um, within 12 months and two international moves, we were back to within five blocks of where we'd been before when I was a graduate student, because I came back here and joined the faculty at Chicago in 2004. And I've been here ever since. There's a lot to dig in there. But before we do that, I just want to kind of get us caught up to speed with where you are now. Can you just tell me a bit about the research that you do and, and what you do at Chicago presently? What is your research focus on? Yeah, I work on Indian Buddhist philosophy. The philosophical tradition of first millennium India, when the Indian philosophical tradition was at its peak of sophistication and creativity and novelty. And Buddhists were um, enormously significant contributors to that conversation. Anybody who's interested in studying Indian philosophy has to reckon with the, the significance of Buddhists in, in that conversation. Because for the in first millennium India, they were really major players. And the, the thinkers I study are, to this day, the main thinkers in the traditional Tibetan monastic curriculum. So the Indian philosophical thinkers whose work I engage really epitomize the aspect of the Buddhist tradition, of Indian Buddhist tradition that became most significant in, in Tibet. And I work on it philosophically. I try to take this stuff seriously, not just as interesting for the history of ideas, but as interesting in the same way that people in a philosophy department can still find Aristotle or Kant interesting. People still find there to be viable contributions to be made to current debate based on revisiting the thought of, of historical thinkers. And so in thinking about and, and translating and interpreting first millennium Indian Buddhist philosophical works, I'm always doing it in conversation with modern philosophers, um, thinking with modern philosophers about where the Buddhist thinkers stand to make interesting contributions, helping us appreciate that this first millennium Indian tradition has lots to say that's 
relevant to things that are still very much matters of live debate in philosophy. So I'm interested in not just sort of preserving in the museum of the history of ideas, some ideas of Buddhist thought, but I'm interested in recuperating these and introducing them into contemporary philosophical debate, because I think there's a lot that Buddhist tradition gets really interestingly right. That's fascinating. Again, more we could dig into, but to kind of jump back into your career path, and I know we're jumping around a bit, but thinking back to early years, middle school, high school, Uh pre-college, what were you interested in? And is there anything that really echoes where your career path ended up going? Are there ways where you can see like, oh, of course I ended up here because I was so interested in this. Tell me a bit about what you were interested in and, and how that may or may not reflect the direction you ended up going in in life. Yeah, yeah, I can totally talk about that. Well, I grew up in Denver and, and as I mentioned, my father was a, a professor. He taught French history at the University of Denver. So I grew up knowing that that was a thing that a person could do. I didn't grow up intent on doing that myself, but I certainly grew up interested in doing things that involved writing and interpretation and analysis. I think I most often imagined becoming a a journalist or a high school teacher. When I was in high school, I had teachers who were certainly really important to me and and whose influence I I admired and appreciated. And so I I was certainly drawn to something in in the humanities or maybe social sciences and something that would involve writing and and thinking. And as I said, I majored in history in college and and medieval European history at that and and only discovered when I was in graduate school at Columbia and, and chanced to find myself reading Daniel Dennett I only only discovered then that it was philosophical interests that I had, but that totally made sense when I went back and thought about the senior history thesis that I had had written at Carleton College, where I, I ended up writing a thesis that was not at all about a product of conventional historical research or analysis, but instead a sort of higher order reflection on why I had been mistaken in the first place to think that a certain comparative project was going to work. I'd I'd been under pressure to devise a senior thesis project in a year that I knew I would would find me spending my fall semester in India and Nepal on Tibetan studies program. So I proposed a thesis that was somehow comparatively draw on my work in medieval European history and on what I hadn't yet experienced on, on this Tibetan studies program. And when I came back, what I ended up writing about was why that had been a, a, a misguided idea in the first place. And so in retrospect, I can see that I was more interested reflecting on how we know things and what it means to know something. I, I was more interested in that than I, than, I, than I found it natural to do archival research, for example that thinking deeply about things and whether we we know or understand them and what it would mean to do so, those were the things that really interested me. And then and, and again, see in retrospect that I had kind of always been drawn to those kinds of things. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. One thing we've been talking a lot about in this series is people who have supported you or been mentors or influenced you throughout your career path. And I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about some important people that come to mind. I know you mentioned a few already, but professional support, even teachers in high school, other mentors, family, friends. Can you talk about some significant influences or significant support people that you've had throughout your career? When, when I applied to college, I wrote my application essay about 
two social studies teachers I had in high school, Dick Jordan and Gerald McCracken, who were super influential to me. And one of the things I especially remember from Mr. McCracken, who was also the soccer coach, but uh, one of the few teachers in this Denver Public Schools high school I went to who really taught all the students in the school and, and was really admired by the whole school population. And really, and one of my favorite sort of sayings from him was that the answers are out there. The trick is to learn to ask the right questions. Um, and he was always more interested in encouraging smart questions than in giving us the answers. And that really checks out in terms of my philosophical interests and in terms of what I find myself advising students to to do or think about or or get more get more clarity on. Very often it seems to me that the students have in inarticulate interests and what they most need to do to get clarity on how to approach their interests is figure out what kind of questions they have. And often that's a disciplinary question. Do you have historical questions or philosophical questions or sociological questions? What's the difference between those different kinds of questions? Um, so a, a, a focus on that as the most important part of the process is something I feel like I've been encouraged to appreciate since high school. And there's also Mr. McCracken who... It was under his influence that I first traveled to, to Japan in high school and uh, resolved early on that to the extent I undertook any, any travel or adventure in my life, I would, I would be interested in doing it more off the beaten path. I, I didn't want to travel to Paris and Rome and London. I wanted to sort of go trekking through Nepal or, and, and both of those orientations, the interest more in asking good questions and the interest in putting myself in challenging situations and, and dealing with the bewilderment of it. Those are things I was felt encouraged to do really early on. We sent over some pre-interview questions that you filled out before this. And you wrote that the biggest resistance you faced was your own resistance to your career. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about what, what you mean by that? What was the biggest resistance that you faced or that you were met with throughout your career? Well, I, I mentioned that my father was a professor, but I mentioned as well that even though he was a professor, I didn't find myself especially drawn to that. And I, I think I had some of the same kinds of misgivings that lots of thoughtful people have about academia, thoughts about whether that was the optimal way to make a difference in the world. Well, so one really difficult thing that my advisor, Paul Griffiths, taught me to appreciate pretty early on was that there's something very strange about having your intellectual life and, and identity be coextensive with your professional life and identity. And, and so I said, I think that during those Denver years, when I was studying in a really unhurried, unpressured, non-instrumental sort of way, that that felt like the most philosophically purely motivated part of, of my studies. And I'm aware of the difference between how I tended to read then and uh, what it's like now when reading or studying, I'm, I'm apt to be preoccupied with questions about whether I'll get a good publication out of this or, or whether this is something that I'll be able to get a grant for or the like. And what I like best, though, so, so I had that resistance about siloing myself in, into the life of just a professional 
intellectual and, and still am troubled by the impact of that on thinking. And what I find most exciting, though, and, and when I find myself most completely leaving behind any of those concerns are when I'm interacting with students and find them excited about whatever it is I'm, I'm teaching or talking about with them. So I'm still, at the end of the day, motivated more than anything just by sheer intellectual excitement. And uh, when I can participate in sharing that with somebody and, and feel that it's been communicated and feel somebody really getting excited about it, that makes it all worthwhile. And then and the resistance I had, though, had to do with the many things about higher education in North America that mitigate against the kind of pure non-instrumental pleasure in the excitement of ideas. There are so many changes afoot in higher education in North America that mostly involve, or that largely involve thinking of education in entirely instrumental terms, entirely in terms of uh, what kind of salary it will get you, what kind of job. And whenever I can have the experience of sharing real excitement with ideas about ideas with students, I, I find all those misgivings recede. And, and that passing on from one generation to the next, the love of ideas and, and the skills necessary to really probe them is, is what keeps me going. You kind of touched on this, but I want to keep following this thread. What feels inspiring to you about your work right now? It could be working with students or about research that you're doing, but what feels like the thing that really keeps you going and, and is keeping you energized and inspired in your work? Well, what keeps me going is the ideas I'm interested in. I'm, I'm, I work in particular on the, the Madhyamaka School of, of Indian Buddhist philosophy and, and, and quite interesting as well in, in the American pragmatist tradition of, of philosophical thought become quite interested in Charles Sanders' purse in particular. And I think these are traditions of thought that have really important ideas about, among other things, and this is one of the things I've been most preoccupied with in recent years and something that most recurs in my teaching. These are important traditions that have important things to say, especially about the reality and the the real consequential significance of mind and imagination. And I share the view of the current Dalai Lama, a view he nicely expresses in his book, uh, The Universe in a Single Atom, that the scientific thinking that is, is most lauded today uh, is too often scientistic thinking that regards persons and mind and imagination all in terms of how readily calculable they are, whether they're, they're, they can have an economic benefit. And I think that's a, a dangerous kind of orientation. And I agree with a lot of 20th century, century philosophical thinkers who worry about the technologization and the objectification of, of mind and meaning. And I see in the Buddhist and American pragmatic just traditions of philosophical thought that interest me. I see really important, but also really interesting arguments that I think need to be heard about why it's so problematic and, and dangerous, and not to mention incoherent, to deny the, the basic reality of, of mind and imagination. They're incredibly consequential things in mind, imagination, and, and value. 
I'm curious what advice you might have to a young person who is considering entering your field, pursuing a major within the religion department or pursuing a career in academia or in religious studies beyond Chicago. What advice would you have to a young person who is really excited about these same ideas and who wants to continue down this this course for their career or their personal life? Well, I would I would encourage anybody interested in this. I would certainly encourage them to to maintain that interest and, and to develop it because I think these are intrinsically interesting and important ideas. I would also encourage anybody to be pretty clear eyed about it and to be mindful of the changing employment landscape of, in higher education and. There are lots of changes afoot in in higher education, and a lot, get, lots of it getting a lot of press, and changes involving the proportion of faculties that are tenured, and the increasing use of of casual labor and whatnot. So there are lots of regrettable and and, and worrisome trends, but there are also lots of bright spots and in, in, in encouraging signs. And I guess it requires being clear-eyed about the the challenges and it requires patience. It it takes a long time to develop humanistic understanding. Uh, It takes a long time to study the languages that one needs to know to do research on, on, in my case, Buddhist thought. And if one can't live with the uncertainty about the, the job market and can't be patient enough to, to to keep anxiety about that at bay, it'd be really hard, I think, to make it in, in academia. Some of the best advice I was given early on was, don't go into this unless there's just really nothing else you can imagine doing. And for me, that's what it was. I, I just loved this stuff and, and couldn't imagine doing anything else. And even though the fact that my, my dad was a professor hadn't made me really intent on that career path myself. It certainly made that a familiar idea to me. So I was privileged to at least have the idea that, well, this is something a person can do. And that made it easier, I suppose, for me to, to patient with the, the years of years of studying during which I was sustained just by my interest in what I was studying. So you have to be able to be sustained for a pretty long time just by the interest of the the material. And I don't think a person can be sustained through all that just by employment hopes, for example. So I don't know how straightforwardly encouraging that advice is, but I think it's good advice to to be clear-eyed about um, what the the marketplace is like and patient with that fact and patient with the uncertainty what this study will make possible and confident in the intrinsic worth of it. I guess maybe that's the last thing to say that I think I was also all along sustained by my confidence that, well, this is all intrinsically valuable and worthwhile study. And it's important to me as a human person. I'm existentially animated by it. And somebody who's not interested in what they're doing in that way, I think would have a really hard time sustaining the, the, the energy it takes. 
I think that's realistic. I think that's really good advice. And I appreciate that. The last question I have for our conversation today is what is the most gratifying thing that you do in your field or about your work? What feels gratifying as we conclude this conversation? I think there's just no question that what's most gratifying is uh, connecting with students. It's happened to me so many times over the years that for no particular reason or whatever, I might be in a, a funk or, or maybe just got done with some annoying meeting at work and then have a stretch of two or three half hour conversations back to back in office hours and just completely am transformed. Uh, not all office hours conversations go that way, but when I have just a, a just a handful of engaged, engaging conversations with students whose excitement and 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 growth I can I can see happening in the conversation, that makes everything else worthwhile. That's what really sustains me, maybe more than anything. Thank you, Professor Arnold, for your time today. And course takers, if you enjoyed listening to today's episode, please check out the other ones. Leave us a comment, subscribe, follow, and share this episode with your friends. You can find out more about the University of Chicago through uchicago.edu or the university's campus in Hong Kong through uchicago.hk. Stay tuned for more. See you around. Thank you.